The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Welcome to the 600-something weekly box of oddities. What the hell are you doing? Oh, I'm just inviting our friends to join us to celebrate the magic of movies. You sound like a really bad YouTube commercial voiceover. What? Are you okay? Yes, I'm hosting, sweetie. I'm hosting. Oh, you're a host. Yes. I see. Because this is the Oscars episode. Thank you for joining us. The envelope, please. If you don't stop, I'm going to be forced to stuff this sock down your throat. Please don't leave me. Okay. The Oscars coming right up. And so we thought we would uh, look at some of the darker things that involve the Oscars. Hollywood history. And as you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of classic era comedy, oh. you know, like the Marx Brothers or Laurel and Hardy. But my all-time favorite is W.C. Fields, mostly because he was so sarcastic. He had such a dry sense of humor, and he stuck his finger in the eye of authority. He said things like, I like to keep a bottle of whiskey handy in case I see a snake. Which I also keep handy. I appreciate that every time you present me with something um, from the old Hollywood days, you provide a preamble, which is, of course, this is of its time, (laughs) and maybe it's not the same kind of humor Mm -hmm. that you like Mm -hmm. now. It's like you're preparing me. Like, you're not going to think this is funny, but I want to show it to you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I was thrilled when W.C. Fields' great-grandson and great-granddaughter-in-law contacted us and told us their favorite episode of The Box of Oddities. Hi, I'm T.J. Fields. And I'm Amy Fields. And our favorite episode of The Box of Oddities is The Bundy Drive Boys featuring W.C. Fields. So growing up, I heard many stories about W.C., but uh, one particular story that resonated with me is the story of my father's birth. So W.C. took on the role of chauffeur, driving his wife, daughter-in-law, and the newest addition to the family, my infant father, from the hospital to their home. And along the way, uh, W.C. made an announcement in the car that it was time to teach the little nipper how to drink. 
So naturally, W.C., with a flair for the dramatic, poured himself a neat shot of whiskey, followed by a chaser of water. Well, to everyone's amazement, and I imagine disbelief, he rolled down the car window and spat out the water. Anyways, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy even more stories of W.C. and his Bundy Drive buddies in this episode. In the 1930s and into the early 40s on Bundy Avenue, just north of Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, behind a row of hedges, stood a small Tudor-style lodge. Not really a lodge, it was more of a cottage. It was a caretaker's cabin. At the height of Hollywood's golden age, it was kind of a hangout for some of the rich and famous. Uh, They called themselves the Bundy Boys because it was on Bundy Avenue, but they also referred to themselves as the over the hill scallywags. <laughs> okay. Was was Al Bundy one of them? No, Al Bundy was not one of them. Okay. When a person would approach the cottage, they could tell immediately that uh, pranks and devilish behavior took place in there. I love pranks and devilish behavior. In front of the building was a heavy wooden door, and above a brass lion's head door knocker was what appeared to be a family crest. But it wasn't a family crest. If you looked at it, it was two unicorns carved into it. But if you looked closer, the motto underneath of it said, useless, insignificant, poetic. (laughs) This was the hangout for the Bundy Drive boys. Now, the cottage's resident at the time was a guy named John Decker. He was an artist that had a very shady background and if one dives into his biography you would be confronted with quite a trail of mystery and intrigue he used to paint uh, he would combine images of the hollywood elites with famous historical figures probably his most famous you might recognize it is the painting of wc fields as queen victoria have you ever seen that? I don't think so. The original, I think, hung in uh, Chasen's restaurant for like decades, but it's it's pretty well known. Decker played the kingpin to this band of over-the-hill scallywag boys. Um, along with Decker, the group consisted of actors W.C. Fields. Oh, hey. John Barrymore. Errol Flynn. Was John Barrymore Drew Barrymore's grandfather? Yes. Okay. Yes. Journalist Gene Fowler and art critic Sadakichi Hartman. At this time, even though most of the, these people were, well, they were famous around the world for the most part, but they were quickly approaching the end of their careers. It, they were getting a little long in the tooth, as they say. Okay. So they weren't working all the time by this point. They occupied their time by hanging out at Decker's cottage, or it became their clubhouse. And it would they would partake in activities from epic drinking bouts that would last for days. Oh, jeez. To impromptu Shakespeare stagings. They would get really hammered on scotch and then put on plays for each other. According to Fowler's 1954 memoir, Minutes of the Last Meeting, a book that he wrote about his, his drinking buddies, he said, quote, That brown-beamed studio was a place of meeting for still-lively survivors of the Bohemian times. Mm -hmm. An artist's Alamo, where political bores never intruded, and where breast-beating hypocrites could find no listeners. These men lived intensely, as do children, poets, and jaguars. The Bundy Boy's antics led to a number of incidents involving, well, extreme inebriation in public, and some brushes with the law. 
A good example... Well, extreme inebriation often does. Yeah. A good example of this was when Decker opened his West Hollywood Art Gallery in the mid-40s. The event quickly spiraled downward into a drunken brawl that had to be dispersed by the LAPD. They were... It it seemed like whenever there was a drunken brawl, these guys were involved. (laughs) W.C. Fields' grandson, Ronald Fields, wrote a couple of biographies on on his grandfather, and he said, quote, I don't mean to minimize the Rat Pack... But the Bundy Boys was very different from them. These guys had such a depth in artistry. They probably, in the long run, squandered their great talents by drinking and having fun. But, then again, they just didn't take themselves seriously. They pretty much felt, as W.C. said in one of his movies, Life's a funny thing. You're lucky to get out of it alive. (laughs) Get out of here, kid. You bother me. So these aging movie stars and Hollywood elite knew that they had seen their better days as far as careers had gone, so they filled their days and nights mostly with uh, marathon drinking bouts and always in the little cottage of Deckers. So their partying went on for many years, occasionally spilling out into the community, causing a ruckus, and their infamous antics increased as time went on and would ultimately lead to one of the most outrageous stories to ever come from the golden age of Hollywood. Here's what happened. In 1942, John Barrymore died. Oh. Now, the story goes that the surviving members of the Bundy Boys decided it'd be a good idea to have one less drink with their recently deceased cohort. Wait, did they do like a weekend at Bernie's type thing? Yep. Oh, no. Several of them went to the morgue where they stole Barrymore's body. They did not. And took it to Flynn's house and proceeded to have a little celebration with him. Now, there are those who say that that's just a story, but there are many versions of people who claim to have been there that indicate otherwise. There are several versions of what happened. The earliest written reference is from Errol Flynn's memoir, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, that was written in 1959. In his version, the director Raoul Walsh and two friends talked the caretaker into letting them borrow the body for an hour, telling them that Barrymore's old aunt, who lived in in the household, wanted a final look at her beloved nephew. And they gave him 200 bucks. Which probably was, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then they brought Barrymore's body to Flynn's house, propped him up in Flynn's favorite chair, and then waited for the unsuspecting actor to return from the bar. Flynn said, quote, The lights went on, and oh my God, I stared into the face of Barrymore. His eyes were closed. He looked puffy, white, bloodless. He hadn't been embalmed yet. I let out a delirious scream. Flynn said he got as far as the front porch before Walsh and the others caught up to him and said, no, this is just a joke. It's a prank. They returned Barrymore to the funeral parlor. Flynn went back to his house and spent the entire night shaking and completely sobered up by (laughs) by the prank. He said... It was no way to remember the passing of his friend John Barrymore. Errol Flynn, by the way, William Shatner's favorite Robin Hood. Just saying. Interesting side note. Thank you. Now, Walsh, for his part, wrote in his memoir in 1974, he told his side of the story. He claimed he enlisted the drunk butler that worked for Flynn to help him carry the corpse and prop him up in a corner on a sofa. The butler said... I've never seen Mr. Barrymore so drunk. Looks like he might be dead. Flynn wandered into the room, seeing the body, ran out, hid behind some bushes, and shouted that they'd all end up in San Quentin for the prank. 
Now I can't get the Alan Jackson song "Prop Me Up" beside but the jukebox. Yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go with John Barrymore. Walsh then claimed in his memoir that he told the Undertaker that Barrymore had been to visit Flynn. The Undertaker said, "Quote: Why, if I'd known you were going to take him up there, I would have put a better suit on him." <laughs> now, like I said, there are those who say that this never happened. Right. One version of what happened to Barrymore comes from Gene Fowler, son of Will Fowler, who claims that he and his dad sat beside Barrymore's body for the entire night. He claims that it was not whisked off by Walsh or anyone else for that matter. He said the only one during the evening that came to visit the body was uh, an old prostitute that everybody knew. It seems to me that it is... um a lot more sad if nobody else came to visit him. Mm. So for decades, this has been one of Hollywood's darkest rumors. Many swear that it's true. Some say the account sounds like something that these guys would have made up as a sure. prank. That itself was the prank that, yeah, we stole John's body and we <laughs> drank whiskey at the poker table. Because <laughs> that's yep. how they all talked back then. Yep. It's just the kind of thing that these guys would do. Others are not so sure. Recently... On the YouTube show Hot Ones, host Sean Evans had uh, Drew Barrymore on, John Barrymore's granddaughter, as you pointed out. And he asked her, quote, is it true that your grandfather's body was stolen from the morgue by W.C. Fields and Errol Flynn so that they could prop him up against a poker table and throw one last party with this guy? Drew answered, not only yes... But there have been cinematic interpretations of that. There was a Blake Edwards film called SOB. She says, that's just brilliant and fun to watch. Evans then asked Drew if her grandfather's postmortem festivities had in, had in any way inspired Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> she replied, quote, I've heard things, but I can't know ever if that's even true. It's ironic that it was on a show called Hot Ones. Because he was a cold one. Exactly. Uh, during the height of the Bundy boys carousing, they would often end their festivities with a poem. And <laughs> that uh, sounds like so much. That sounds so much like something that my siblings would do, right? Yeah. Like do something insane and then write a haiku about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of a dead poet society kind of vibe to it. Um, they would close with a poem that was written by Gene Fowler. And so I'm going to close this segment with that poem. Oh, okay. It's called The Testament of a Dying Ham by Gene Fowler. This is how they would close their drunken debauchery ceremonies. It was their favorite poem. I leave them the curse of the dying. I leave them their own fetid crowd. I leave them the voices at midnight. I leave them the hope of a shroud. I leave them the groans of the fallen. I leave them the culture of swine. All these but another bear witness, good brother. I leave them the fate that was mine. My source material came from the Los Angeles Times mm -hmm. and from Mental Floss, the that Bundy Boys. was delightful. In my mind, there's no doubt they took his body. Of course not, because you want it to be true. Is, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I love the idea that they are compared to the Rat Pack, but it's like these are like the band geeks and the Rat Pack is like the pop group, you yeah, know? Right. Like they're, they're the cool ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, even though he'd only been dead for a few hours, he hadn't been embalmed, you know? Yeah. If you're to believe the story, they kept him there all night. 
before they took him back. Mm -hmm. That is not the party atmosphere that I look for. (laughs) Oh, you're just being a prude. (laughs) (laughs) And now, that thing in the middle. Probably the most famous cartoon voiceover artist was Mel Blanc. Mel was the voice of pretty much all the Looney Tune characters, most famously Bugs Bunny. On January 24th, 1964, Blank was in a near-fatal car accident and was brought to the hospital in a coma. The doctors unsuccessfully tried to get Mel to talk. Finally, one of the doctors, who was a huge fan of his cartoon characters, asked Mel, Bugs? Bugs Bunny, are you there? And in Bugs Bunny's voice, Mel responded, Eh, what's up, Doc? After talking with several other of Mel Blank's characters, they eventually led Mel out of his coma. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Did you know that the curator used to dream of being a game show announcer? Hard to believe, right? This is The Box of Oddities. All right. Well, this is an exciting point in this episode for us here on The Box of Oddities. It is Oscar week, or it's very, very close to Oscar week. And we're exploring Oscar stories that are a little bit dark, but also the golden age of Hollywood. And we are so fortunate to have some people in our lives that are very well versed in this kind of stuff. And we've asked them to join us today. They are the host of our sister podcast, From Beneath the Hollywood Sign, Nan McNamara is an award-winning actor, writer, director, and producer based in Los Angeles. And you you know her from shows like Hawaii Five-0, Criminal Minds, uh, Lone Star 911, many, many more. And Steve Kubine is a filmmaker and a writer, and he is well-known as the writer-producer of the uh, 2018 Primetime Emmy Award-winning series Break a Hip. Um, He has over 15 years of producing experience and is a proud member of the Directors Guild of America and the Television Academy. He's also a novelist. We are so thrilled to have you both on the show. And we're we're so proud to be affiliated with professionals professionals and your (laughs) podcast from beneath the Hollywood sign. Welcome aboard. Thanks, guys. I'm just struck by the fact that we're your sister. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I love our sorority yeah. here. Oh, my gosh. Should we get a sorority house? That would be so much fun. <laughs> we should at least get satin jackets okay. with, like, piping on the yeah. sleeves. Yeah, I want some Greek letters. <laughs> I don't care what they are. You guys are steeped in Hollywood knowledge. Um, and I know because I'm interested in in the golden age of Hollywood, there was there were a lot of scandals and and uh, dark activities that took place (laughs) and probably still do. I'm sure they do. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've discovered. So, so, I mean, so many things. I mean, it starts back to the roots of Hollywood, Um, you know, before I think uh, anyone knew any better, there there was rampant drug use through the early days of Hollywood, which I think Mm. infiltrated Mm. throughout and, and, um, probably inspired some creative <laughs> stories but you know there's there's that there's love affairs there's murders or suicides you know we love to cover that stuff on the podcast so um you know we, we yeah we've got some stories didn't the oscars originally take place at the old roosevelt hotel yes that place is full of ghosts. Oh, yes. Full of ghosts. And it, it did. It started originally. It was just a banquet. It wasn't the big hoopla that it is now. It was just a lot of people getting together, maybe 150 people at the Roosevelt Hotel in one of the banquet rooms just to give out a few awards. It was so low key. It was very simple. It wasn't televised on the radio. Yeah. Very different from today. And it was originally the Academy Awards. And when and why did it switch to the Oscars? That's a great question. Or is it kind of like a, it's always been sort of both? Yeah, it's it's kind of both. It, it's interesting. I mean, it's still the Academy Awards, but uh, somewhere along the way, somewhere in the 30s, 
the the actual statue got the name Oscar. And there's been lots and lots of stories about who actually named it Oscar. One story is that Betty Davis named it Oscar because she thought it looked like her uncle Oscar. But there's there's various stories of how <laughs> Oscar came to, to be. So it, it's interesting. So it, for shorthand, I think, they started just calling it the Oscars instead of the Academy Awards ceremony. So it, it's interesting. Oh. So you guys have about... 25 episodes of From Beneath the Hollywood Sign podcast. Is that is that correct? We do. We just dropped our 24th last night, and uh, 25 is coming up, and we're actually going to do an episode in the next two weeks about the history of the Academy Awards. Um, so we'll have more details about that in, in an upcoming episode. That's so cool. Congratulations, you guys. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Thanks, guys. Can you tell us one of your favorite stories? Yes. We wanted to share with you a story about an Academy Award winning actress that some of you may know from a little movie called The Maltese Falcon, Mary Astor. Now, she played that sort of wicked woman in The Maltese Falcon. But before that, Mary Astor was quite a lovely actress. Yeah, I, I think her screen persona when she first started was she was the, the virgin. She was the, the young ingenue who was just lovely and fresh and young. And it's interesting because um, the scandal we're going to talk about that involves Mary Astor really shows a different side of Mary Astor the person, which is very interesting. I'm listening. I think, I think it's important <laughs> to note just at this at this juncture, that Mary Astor kept a diary from the time she was a little girl. And that continued into her 20s. You can imagine how this is going to turn out. <laughs> a, a little girl who keeps a diary with yeah, right. every <laughs> detail you can ever imagine. <laughs> she was married to uh, Howard Hawks's, the director, his brother, by the name of Ken Hawks. She got married. Um, she was married to him and widowed at 23. He died in an. Wow. He died at filming an airplane, uh, an aerial sequence. And um, she went to find love in a doctor that was recommended to her, Franklin Thorpe. And he was pretty enthralled with her fame and her money, and they ended up having a daughter. But Thorpe was hot-tempered, verbally abusive, was having an affair, and uh, the, the marriage was not going well. A great catch, in other words. Yeah, yeah sounds it. <laughs> so, she, so she's thinking about divorcing him. And she goes off to New York, and she meets the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright George S. Kaufman, who, um, with his partner Moss Hart, wrote everything that was on Broadway at the time. You Can't Take It With You, The Man Who Came to Dinner. Well, um, Mary and George began a torrid love affair. Yeah. Oh my. my goodness. And guess what? Mary wrote every detail in the diary. Oh. Yes. My oh my. God. Okay. <laughs> every detail. You have my attention. Yes. So Mary wrote everything down. Kaufman had an open marriage. So everything was fine with his with his wife. Okay. But Mary comes back to LA and basically asks Dr. Thorpe for a divorce. But wow. Thorpe sort of suspected that this might happen. So um, 
In anticipation for Mary's big maneuver, months earlier, he had searched the house and Dr. Thorpe found the diary. Oh, oh no. Well, and, and some of the things that were in the diary were, you know, she talks about how Dr. Thorpe was no good in bed. And she talks about how she hated his <laughs> name dropping and his social climbing. And she was furious the way he lavishly spent her money. Uh, she even made fun of him for trying to grow a mustache like Clark Gable. So his ego was pretty crushed by this <laughs> diary, <laughs> but he saw it as a tool yeah. and um, he used it. He threatened Mary Astor if she tried to divorce him that he would publish and let the public know about this diary, which he felt would ruin her career. And so it was sort of this leverage that he held against her. But eventually, she, you know, she was fearful. She was worried about, you know, her career going away. She she loved her daughter, but she decided that she was going to divorce him and he was going to get primary custody of their daughter because he had this diary hanging over her. Oh, wow. And, and I just interject Ooh. a little bit. I, I think she really felt cornered and, and it wasn't just about her career. She knew that this diary would ruin Kaufman's career and would also ruin friends' careers because she had written very intimate things about all her fancy famous friends and their uh, indiscretion. So there was a little powder keg right. of info in this diary. Right. Where can I get a copy of this? <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell you about that um, actually uh, at the end. So a year goes by and she decides that she is not loving this arrangement and decides to challenge the divorce orders, the, the, the thing that was decided. She decides to challenge it when she finds some bruises on her daughter and realizes that he's being abusive. So mm. a custody battle ensues, and it's huge. It is the <laughs> biggest scandal since Patty Arbuckle. Wow, really? At the time of the, uh, the custody trial, she was in the middle of filming William Wyler's uh, film, Doddsworth. So she had to take time off from filming to go to court to fight for her daughter. But before the trial could start, uh, Dr. Thorpe, being the clever fellow that he was, he started leaking passages of the diary to the press. What a guy. Oh, no. <laughs> and of course, he, he leaked the parts about her affair with Kaufman, who she only called G uh, in the diary. And this caused quite a sensation. You know, everybody thought suddenly virginal Mary Astor was a whore. You know, you can imagine. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, probably though he didn't leak the parts about how he was terrible in bed <laughs> and <laughs> right? he kept that to himself. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> interesting. Reported as well that some of the things that he leaked were not true. Some of the things that he wrote were were so oh. Yeah, he made he made crap up. Yeah, wow. Crap up. I mean, there are quotes like thrilling ecstasy with George who fits me perfectly. Many exquisite mm. moments. 20, count them, diary, 20. <laughs> I don't see how he does it. This is okay. Very, yeah, this okay. is not exactly what the diaries actually said. One of the funny things that he fabricated that he leaked to the press was that Mary had this rating system 
of every celebrity she ever slept with. So then every studio head in Hollywood was terrified that one of their big, virile leading men <laughs> would get a bad rating from Mary Astor. <laughs> oh, no. So everybody was involved in this trial and worried that it was going to bring them all down. Yeah. Yeah, this guy, I think I think the technical term for a person like that is uh, colossal jack wagon. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Right? I'm going to start using that. A JW. Yeah. Her, her diaries became known as the Purple Diaries. And there's actually a really good book about it called The Purple Diaries. Uh, they called it that because it was supposedly written in purple ink, but actually she used brown ink. They just decided purple was a sexier color, I think. Sure. Yeah. It's marvelous. Marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brand your scandal. So it, wow. So so Mary Astor has to take the take the stand. And one of the things that um, in researching this that I found interesting, just as an actress, is she she was playing this character in Dodsworth that was calm and cool and collected. And when she took the stand, she had finished filming and. She wrote in her memoir that she just continued to pretend that she was playing that character. So that when she got up, wow. clever, yeah, wow. she could remain, you know, calm and cool, and it really helped her in terms of the press and how everybody viewed her at the time. I'm amazed, though, that she kept writing things down yeah. after all of this. <laughs> well, and a, a kind of an interesting bit about this trial, too, is that, you know, it just so happens that George S. Kaufman was in Los Angeles when the trial was going on. So the judge agreed to allow him to be subpoenaed. Uh, but his friends found out and his old buddy Moss Hart ended up literally skirting him out of town, almost like in a, in a truck, like a Marx Brothers movie. They, they got him out of town. He wasn't able to be subpoenaed. So old George didn't have to talk about the diary or if it was true or not. I wonder if she had written about the size of his subpoena. <laughs> you stole it. I was going to say exactly that thing. You stole it. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> that's hilarious. Finally. This trial has continued, and it, these salacious entries, the opposing attorney keeps bringing up these salacious entries, mm. and the judge kind of gets tired of it. He's like, this is a custody battle. We need right. to get back on track here, people. And, and so he halts the trial. He balls out the attorneys, reminds them of why they're there, and tells them, you got three days to figure this out. And wow. so they do. They reach a decision, and... Marilyn was awarded. Um, Mary Lynn, I guess, is how, even though it looks like Marilyn when you when you see the spelling of it, she was awarded to her mother during the school months and to her father for vacations and weekends. Okay, all right. That seems like a lot. Yeah. And what, what I love about this is, you know, Mary was convinced that her career was over, you know, that everyone just thought she was the whore of Babylon and she would never act again. Uh, but, you know, the truth <laughs> came to her when they released Dodsworth, when it debuted in, I think it was September of that same year, when Astor first appeared on screen, audiences across the United States clapped and cheered for her. So I guess they, uh, oh my God. they liked what they- yeah. They liked Mary. <laughs> I love it. I love that. And of course, Mary went on to have an incredible career. Right. Her best years were, were after this whole scandal happened. So the worry yeah. about wow. her career being brought down was unfounded. Well, that had a happy ending. At least it didn't bring her 
her career down in, in a pile of ashes and twisted steel wreckage. Right. Except, unfortunately, your question about the diaries. Yes. These diaries were kept by the court, right? Okay. And, oh. and in 1952, by court order, the diaries were taken out of a bank vault where they had sat for 16 years. And both Thorpe and Mary Astor had agreed that they would be set aflame. And so oh. they were, <laughs> really? with a judge standing by, the diaries were burned. So we will never really know all that they contained. That's a bummer. That. <laughs> yeah. I know. But, you know, I, I think a great way to sum this whole story up is, um, and it's just, I find this so interesting. In, in 1948, I believe, Mary Astor was at MGM and she was filming this gritty, dark film noir called Act of Violence, where she played a prostitute who helps Van Heflin. Well, she was doing that in the mornings and in the afternoon, she was crossing the lot at MGM. She was putting on Victorian clothes and she was playing Marmy in Little Women at the same time. So it's so perfect. Oh it really God. sums up the virgin lady and the whore, yeah. you know, that the persona yeah. that everyone thought she was. She did it all in the same day, making these two great movies. That's an amazing acting quality or ability <laughs> if you can uh, switch. Right. Over lunch. Over lunch, <laughs> throwing on a, a, another costume in the parking lot on the way over. Wow. Exactly. I mean, that's that's remarkable. What a great story, you guys. That's great. And and actually, Mary Mary's uh, first house is uh, about three blocks from me in Beechwood Canyon, which is cool. Oh, wow. Because you literally live, Steve, beneath <laughs> the Hollywood sign. Literally, yeah. You walk out my door and look up and there's the Hollywood sign. Wow. wow. That's crazy. We appreciate you guys taking some time to, uh, to spend with us. That was a great story. And um, if you guys enjoyed that, uh, you can check out uh, Steve and Nan's podcast from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. We'll put the link in our show description in the show notes if you want to check them out. You've got 24 episodes, 25 is in the can and almost ready to be released. Yep. Uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, we got a lot of great stories if you're interested in old Hollywood. And even if you're not, it's a wonderful way to learn about the movie industry and its beginnings and and just the great films that are out there right now that you can that you can find. It's not like when we were kids and you had to wait until Saturday afternoon. <laughs> you can find <laughs> it and learn about the film industry and how it all began. Is there a website that people could go to to find out more? Um, yeah, you know, this our podcast actually started as a blog, and you know, it's a still an active blog, so you can listen to or you can read other great stories from the last five years at from beneath the Hollywood sign.com. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Thank you. We love Boo. <laughs> How wonderful it is to get people who actually know what they're talking about on this show. <laughs> I know it's a rarity. <laughs> we have to look into doing that more often. Yeah. Anyway, once again, the link to From Beneath the Hollywood Side will be in the show description. The show notes. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. 
That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.